electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Tonight on this CNBC special, Back to Business, a rocky start to September. Stocks tumbling in the afternoon. On average, September is the worst month for the major indexes. So is today's action just the start of a September swoon? We will drill down on the moves. Today's early gains turning to losses as investors forgot about the jobs report and focused instead on a brewing energy war in Europe. We will break down what's to come for the energy markets with RBC Capital's Halima Croft. Plus, a front row view of the jobs market with Paycheck CEO Marty Musi. And Mad Money host Jim Cramer's take on how to set up your portfolio for September. I'm Becky Quick. Thank you for joining us on a dramatic day for the markets. After what many people described as a Goldilocks jobs report this morning, stocks shot higher up the open. The Dow up 370 points at the high of the day. But if you packed up early and left for the beach, look out in the early afternoon. Russia's Gazprom saying that it will not reopen a gas pipeline to Germany. It's blaming, yeah, maintenance issues, but uh, we'll see if you believe that. Starks did turn sharply lower. Things settled down briefly, but the selling accelerated once again into the close. And then, after the market closed, more potential bad news for the markets. The U.S. State Department approving a potential sale of Block 2 Sidewinder missiles to Taiwan for $85.6 million. Now, let's wrap things up. The Dow closing down 337 points on this Friday. That was a swing of more than 700 points from the high of the day. The Nasdaq lower by nearly one and a half percent. That extends its losing streak to six days, down eight percent over that period of time. 3M, the biggest loser on the Dow and down 14 percent in a month. Meta also lower by three percent today, despite reaching a deal with Qualcomm to develop custom chips for metaverse applications. And Starbucks falling as the markets react to news of the company's new CEO. But let's start with the jobs report. 315,000 jobs added in August. That's right about in line with what had been expected. The unemployment rate climbing to 3.7 percent. That was just higher than had been forecast. Average hourly earnings up by three tenths, but that was a little below what people had been expecting, too. And then the labor force participation rate now sitting at around 62 percent. That was a big gain. It's the highest level we've seen since March. 
but historically it is still quite low. So could we see a less aggressive Fed as a result of these numbers? Joining us is CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. And Steve, um, we were together this morning when this data hit, and we both kind of looked at it and thought, Goldilocks, this is pretty good news for the markets, pretty good news for the economy, and maybe keeps the Fed a little at bay. What, what do you think after kind of sifting through everything you've seen through the course of the day? Yeah, well, we meet again 13 hours later, Becky. But this report, I think, marks the beginning of what the Fed needs to see the easiest concern about the job market running too hot and pushing up inflation, but not enough by itself. Maybe you remember, Becky, earlier this morning, I laid out what I thought would be the perfect Powell payroll report that is for Fed Chair Jay Powell. And this report checked a lot of the boxes. Modest payroll growth, slightly rising unemployment, growing participation and moderating wage growth. All of that more or less, maybe some question about the top. It wasn't perfect. At 350,000 jobs, job growth still well above what you'd call the steady state for this economy, normally about 100 to 150,000 jobs. The 0.3% monthly wage gain in wages still means they're up 5.2% year over year, too hot. And the influx of workers into the workforce, it needs to continue to create slack in the labor force. Uh, so that may be why uh, the Fed funds futures market dial just some dovishness into the probability, but not a whole lot. That is for a 75 basis point increase in September. Probability fell to 56% from 75%, so it's still seen as the most likely outcome. At the same time, you have to watch out. There is another risk. 800,000 came into the workforce. 400,000, according to the household survey, found jobs. That's why the unemployment rate ticked up two tenths. Remains to be seen if those Americans can find jobs or if this is the beginning potentially of more worrisome increase in the unemployment rate. Becky? All right, Steve, let me ask you this. I, we've got Peter Bookvar on next, and I know what he's going to say because I read the notes. I have a little bit of advantage there. Um, he's a little worried that this is historically a very low participation rate number. What, what would you say to him um, to kind of counter that with the other side? Because I think we looked at participation this I mean morning and thought it was pretty decent. Yeah, look, it definitely ticked up this month. Uh, the household survey has a lot of volatility. I don't think Peter would argue with that. Um, it needs to continue. Uh, we, we, we have a full percentage point that we could go to get back to where we were in February 2020. But we still have COVID concerns. We still have a lot of uh, people who are out uh, uh, from COVID. That could be an issue. People who are, who are concerned about COVID. So it may be that we can't get back there. And Peter's concerns may be correct. The question is, you know, what do we do? We have to try to keep bringing people into the economy. I know that Larry Summers has this sort of Malthusian concern that we keep bringing people in and they require more jobs and it spirals up. If that were the case, we'd never have enough workers. That's not the case. We need to bring people into the economy in order to create the supply that's needed for this economy, especially if we're onshoring things. So we need, Becky, a better uh, continued job growth in this economy, but we also need people to keep coming in and high wages may be the answer. Steve, thank you. By the way, it's really good to start and end my day with you. And Buddy, take the rest of the day you off. You too. Have a great weekend. Have a good holiday. You too. I'll see you later. All right, folks, let's dig into these numbers a little bit more. We bring in Peter Bookvar. He is chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory. And, and Peter, I know you're taking a look at this and thinking that the, this was a bit of a miss on some of these numbers. What bothered you? What kind of jumped out? Well, it was mixed. The, the headline number was about expected, but the two prior months were revised down about 100,000. The bright spot certainly was the household survey that saw, as Steve mentioned, north of 400,000 jobs added and a large increase in the size of the labor force. So as you said, the unemployment rate went up, but for good reason. Uh, wage growth was about as in line. A positive actually was you were talking about the participation rate. Interestingly enough, 25 to 54-year-olds, the participation rate is almost back to where it was 
in February 2020. Right. And for women in particular, the participation rate is 0.1% from an all-time record high. So that was where a bright spot was. Yeah, I, I saw that too. And I thought, you know, maybe we are kind of getting through the issues of COVID where you couldn't get childcare because that was a huge issue and a huge reason that women dropped out of the workforce in particular. Exactly. And, and, and I think that was a definite positive uh, within the number. The question, though, is the labor market data is typically lagging. And when we look towards the second half of the year, if economic activity continues to moderate, uh, to what extent does that limit the amount of hiring that companies are willing to do? But it's kind of a weird labor market where we're seeing uh, tech-related companies that are cutting back on people and limiting um, and hiring in other parts of their business. But then, you know, the airline industry and the restaurant business can't find enough people. Right. What do you think it means for the Fed? Are they going to be super aggressive, 75 basis points, or does it matter at this point? I, I think the, the CPI number will likely determine whether they go 50 or 75. And I think if you see continued moderation, they'll be okay with 50. I think if it does not, uh, after what we did see some moderation in the prior print, uh, they'll go 75. But either way... Uh, I think that Powell wants to get the Fed funds rate to three, three and a quarter, and the next rate hike, whether it's one or the other, is going to get him there. The question is, is do they take it from three to four and just keep on going? And while people are obviously speculating on, on that, I, I think a lot is going to depend on where the unemployment rate goes from here and how fast the inflation numbers recede. Peter, let me throw two quick market questions at you, and that's kind of the, the curveballs that the market was tossed today. First up, um, the idea that Gazprom says they're not going to be returning on the, the Nord Stream pipeline tomorrow to Germany as expected. Um, look, maybe a lot of us were thinking that might not be the case. They didn't give a timeline. We don't know when or if it will be turned back on. And then after the market closed today, markets and stocks haven't gotten a chance to react to this news. The idea that the U.S. State Department says they are considering the possibility of selling weapons to Taiwan. What does that do in terms of our relationship with, with Europe, with China, and with Russia? Well, the first part with, with uh, European natural gas from Nord Stream. So a week ago, for the, in, the, in the two prior weeks, so a week ago, natural gas in Europe was up 50% over the prior two weeks on the story that Nord Stream was going to close for a couple of days. And then this week, up until uh, midday before that news came out, we had pulled back about 30%. So we're going to have to see what we're going to wake up to on Monday on how much more natural gas prices are going to rally again in Europe, unfortunately. The Taiwan situation, I mean, that, 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 is, that is obviously a worrying situation. The, the question is, is, is the timing of when this, this really starts to heat up. Because right now, a lot of this is, is political. You know, we're sending politicians over to Taiwan. Uh, China responds with with their, uh, their their military exercises. We sell weapons to Taiwan. I mean, it's all very worrisome, but trying to predict where it goes from here is really difficult. Hmm. I guess the one answer is it's September and we still don't have a lot of answers. Same issues are on the table and we're going to have to deal with this when everybody comes back next week from vacation. Peter, thank you for being with us. It's great to see you. Thanks, Becky. Same here. Mm -hmm.
All right, let's get another take on these numbers, the jobs numbers, at least in terms of the corporate hiring perspective. What does this mean for the jobs market? Joining us right now is Marty Musi. He is chairman and CEO of HR and payroll solutions company Paychex. And Marty, I know you focus on mid-level and small businesses. Now, the mm-hmm. overall number for the jobs report looked pretty decent, but my guess is smaller businesses in particular might be having a little bit more trouble with trying to find people to fill their job openings. Is that the case? Yeah, it is, Becky. You know, small businesses always have a little bit tougher time uh, because they don't have quite the flexibility of like remote work, more benefits, things like that. I think the big thing, you know, Steve went through most of the numbers. The big one was the participation rate overall from the BLS that went up. That was a great increase in the participation rate. And one of the interesting things when they broke it down was that the 60 to 64 year olds uh, also increased quite a bit on the participation rate. And, you know, that's the bunch that really started to retire when COVID hit, they kind of got out of the workforce. So to see them come back, I think they're coming back because of inflation. They're coming back because of higher starting wages. They're coming back for benefits. I think that's a real positive, uh, a real positive uh, thing that's happening right now. You know, one thing that surprised me was just the idea that small business employment growth actually slowed in the West. That's kind of a new phenomenon. What happened? Well, there's a lot of uh, there's there's growth in wages. There's also migration. You know, there's a lot of migration out of California right now, uh, we're still seeing the best job growth for small businesses in the South, and that is Florida, that's Texas. You know, the strongest job growth is in Dallas, is in Houston, uh, is over in Georgia or Florida. That's where the strongest real job growth is, and that's where the migration of people are leaving the Northeast, they're leaving the West, like California, and they're coming to places like that. That's where they're filling the big, the big number of job postings in small businesses. What is the best state overall? I, I would have thought it would have been Florida or Texas. That's not the case. Yeah, it, it, Texas is the best overall in mm-hmm. North Carolina and anything in that kind of south, southwest. That's where the migration is. So they're filling the jobs because everyone has a lot of postings. There's a lot of postings out there. Uh, but the jobs that are getting filled and really adding to the employment are the places like Texas uh, and Dallas, Houston, those cities in Texas, and Florida, Georgia, North Carolina. That's where the migration is. So it's really uh, driving, you know, a lot of people are filling the positions in those states. The other thing that's really interesting is, and I had mentioned this on Squawk Box earlier in the week, the number of people searching for second jobs uh, Mm -hmm. or side hustle. Uh, side hustles. As Google said that search is up 42% over last year. People wow. are taking second jobs. We're at the highest rate ever of people taking second jobs. So inflation is driving them back into the workforce for even a second job. Pretty interesting times. With the jobs report this morning, we've talked a lot about the participation rate being higher and being at the, I guess, equal to the highest level we've seen post-pandemic. Does that match what you are hearing from small and mid-sized businesses? Uh, it's it's not quite uh, as good. I think a lot of that is in the mid or larger companies that they're seeing it. You know, we're still seeing leisure and hospitality down a million two uh, jobs from pre-pandemic. Where it's up is in transportation and warehousing. It's up in professional and business services. You know, that's where. So a little bit larger companies are getting more of these jobs filled. The smaller businesses are having a little bit harder time, but they're raising wages. You know, to get there. Now, one of the good news I think this morning was that the 5.2% wage increase, while it's high, Mm -hmm. is kind of leveled off, at least for this month. And so that's good that it's not continuing to go up too much higher than that. Is that the top concern you hear from small businesses, is how much they have to pay workers? It it really is, because there's not a lot of leeway there. Uh, They're already having issues with other inflation uh, concerns, supply chain, and having to pay that high of a wage. What you're seeing, and you saw in the report today, just like in our report, 
the hours are down a little bit. They're cutting back on some of the hours. There's more part-time folks. Uh, the average part-time is over $20 an hour now. And uh, so they're being careful uh, because of the wages. They're being careful on the hiring. Marty, thank you. Marty Musi, I hope you have a great weekend. Thanks. You too, Becky. Okay, thank you. Folks, don't go anywhere. This CNBC special, Back to Business, is just getting started. Tonight, CNBC is back in business. But how about the consumer? We find out. Plus, let's get technical? What the charts are signaling for the month ahead. And Jim Cramer is on the case. His autumn assessment ahead when we return. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Energy, a big focus in the market today as Gazprom announces a total indefinite shutdown to European gas flow after what it claimed was a leak in the Nord Stream 1 pipeline to Germany. Energy was the only S&P sector that managed to eke out gains today. CNBC's Pippa Stevens is here with more on this. Pippa. Hey, Becky, big news for the energy markets today. Gazprom saying this afternoon that it will cut off exports to Europe via the Nord Stream 1 pipeline indefinitely. Now, the pipeline had been taken offline for maintenance, but flows were supposed to resume tomorrow. Gazprom saying it's halting due to a technical issue, but EU leaders have accused Russia of weaponizing energy. European natural gas prices did fall sharply this week after data showed EU gas storage building faster than expected. Nations are scrambling to build stockpiles ahead of winter, but prices are still up 200 percent this year, 
pushing electricity costs to record levels. And that's creating a growing cost of living crisis with power bills shooting through the roof and forcing some businesses to shutter. U.S. natural gas prices also declined this week, falling below $9 per MMBTU. For the year, they've still more than doubled. But in Europe, they've been paying 10 times what we pay here. Becky? Pippa, thank you. For more on this, let's bring in CNBC contributor, RBC Capital Markets, Halima Croft. Um, all right, Halima, how much of a surprise with this, <laughs> was this? They supposedly have a leak in the pipeline. We, we maybe suspected half-heartedly that they weren't going to turn this thing back on. This is Russia weaponizing it. I mean, this is not a surprise at all. I mean, this came hours after the G7 announced their price cap plan for oil, their plan to essentially drive down Russian energy revenues while you know, tackling inflation, they say, by allowing Russian oil to go to Asia. But, you know, the Russians have been clear that they are looking to basically push back on any effort to impose these price caps on oil. Oil is a big revenue generator for Russia. So what do they do? They continue to weaponize gas to make it as painful for Europe as possible to go forward with these sanctions policies. It maybe wasn't a surprise to you and I, but it was a surprise to a lot of people. The markets totally turned around and tanked on this news, went from being up on the jobs report to down pretty significantly. And I, I guess the question is, what happens yeah. next week when we get back into this? We, we had seen relief over the course of the last week. How much concern does this put back into the markets and, you know, what what needs to happen to, to adjust prices accordingly? Well, I was just in Norway with this week and a lot of European leaders were stressing the fact that they had basically built their you know, gas storage. They were ahead of plan. They talked about the fact that, you know, Germany is moving forward very, very rapidly with our LNG infrastructure build out by year end. But, you know, you had a lot of people pushing back on that sort of optimistic story saying, look, we are having energy intensive industries having to like shut down. If it's going to be a colder than expected winter, we're going to be facing, you know, serious rationing and industrial curtailments. And now on top of this, we have the Russian response that they will absolutely halt gas flows to Europe, again, to make this as painful as possible for Europe. So the question is, is there enough additional gas from countries like Norway, you know, U.S. LNG, you know, potentially. But again, if it is a cold winter, Europe is going to be facing a massive economic challenge. I, I guess it also begs the question of what happens to these allies who are standing against Russia and supporting Ukraine. Do they start to turn on each other, not just on the European continent, but even in terms of what the United States will do? If prices go up here, are we still willing to support, supply LNG to Europe if it means that our consumers are going to be paying more money? How, how much resolve is there? I mean, Becky, that is like the million dollar question. I mean, Belgian prime minister this week said we've got this if we stick together. But the question is, will these countries stick together? I mean, I think there was concern when there was that, you know, letter, that memo from, you know, the U.S. Energy Secretary that potentially signaled, you know, halting, you know, U.S. products, exports. I mean, that would be something, again, that would concern Europe a lot as Europe is looking to phase out Russian products exports you know, at the start of next year. And so I think that there's going to be real question marks about will the Western alliance be able to hold together if Russia really, really ups the pain? But, you know, that is the, that's the question about the Russians is they want to basically make the Western alliance fracture. They want people to turn on themselves. And I think it'll be very important to watch some key elections that are happening. What's going to happen, for example, with the Italian election? Will Italy be essentially the weakest link in the Western response to Russia? 
Halima, thank you for uh, wrapping things up for us, telling us what to expect next week. We appreciate it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Still ahead on this CNBC special, Back to Business. Is it time to change your investing playbook after today's action? We're going to break down how to approach the averages as we head deeper into September. And as we head to a break, take a look at the biggest losers on the NASDAQ today. That index seeing six straight losses. That's the first time that's happened since the summer of 2019. Regeneron leading the way lower this morning or this afternoon, down by more than 3.3 percent. We'll be right back. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome back to the CNBC special, Back to Business. As the market digests a more restrictive Fed policy and the labor imbalance, we're going to dig a little deeper into the impact these things will have this month. Already, September is a historically weak month for the markets overall. Midterm years can be particularly challenging, though. Our next guest has her eye on the technicals, though, and says that there is a pretty good chance of a rainbow after this potential September storm. Let's bring in Jessica Inskip, Options Play Director of Product and Education, for more on everything we've been talking about here, Jessica, and, and let's say you see a rainbow coming, explain why and when, how much more rain might we have to endure before that? Yeah, absolutely. And September, like you said, is such a challenging month. And if we're taking it a look from a seasonality perspective, just like you said, it's very challenging and layered into a midterm year, it's even more so challenging. But if we take a step back for seasonality and look forward into October, when we have those downward months in September, October is up 65% of the time, up about 2.14%, which should really overcome the weakness and the storm that we expect in September. And Powell has a lot of data that's going to come out that will hopefully help alleviate that as we get more communication and clarity into what the market wants to do and how it reacts. You know, Jessica, things have felt pretty good the last few weeks and, and, and maybe the last six to eight weeks overall. Maybe not good all the time, but a lot better than we had been doing for this year to this point. What, what technicals are you watching that tell you that things could get better here? What uh, key levels? Yeah, so um, I, I really care about the cloud model. I think that's extremely important. Um, we looked at key levels as far as when Powell spoke when he and also when he last spoke, and we actually retracted right back to that level. So it's a little different from your technical basis is just looking from a starting point to an ending point, qualitative, quantitative, if you will. But from a support level, it's 38 to 3,900. I actually love the way Carterworth describes support. It's like a mattress. So it, it's soft and it sinks in. So that's the level we're watching right now. Going below that, and I've been calling it for a while, is that 200 weekly moving average 
historically taking a big picture on the overall market in every major bear market, it always surpasses that line. And that line right now is around 3,600. What do you do with some of these big macro stories, especially the global geopolitical concerns? I mean, those are the headlines we've heard over the last uh, six or seven hours that I think have people scratching their heads. How do you kind of play that into what you're doing from, a, from not a fundamental perspective, but from a technical perspective? How do you kind of play with that? Yeah, you've got to balance macro versus micro. So in the heart of technical analysis, it's the study of patterns and events, and it believes the market's forward-looking and in prices and any information as soon as it's digested. And then there's that digestive period. And then we look for those levels of support and resistance to see those stopping points and when to play. So if you have something like the, the Russian news come out today or, or any CPI data or something like that, we know that's going to move the market. It's almost like a when earnings comes out, we anticipate something, and then we utilize those support and resistance levels to see when it's going to stop. And if it tests those levels, is it going to sink further, or is it perhaps going to bounce back? I get it. But you know what? We're going to keep our eye on that rainbow and uh, maybe cross our fingers for this. Jessica, thank you. Thank you, Becky. Mm -hmm. Let's stay on this topic of what to expect for stocks this month and into the end of the year. Joining us right now with some of their stock picks are Kevin Simpson. He's the founder and chief investment officer of Capital Wealth Planning. Also, Andrew Graham, who is the CEO of Jackson Square Capital. And gentlemen, just starting off with this, as we're getting ready, getting back to school, what message, Kevin, would you be giving investors as they get ready to come right back to business? Well, summer's over, Becky. It's time to get back to school, back to work, back to reality. No. Time for a new wardrobe, new backpack, fresh supplies. We can't wear what we wore last year. And Becky, we can't invest the way we invested last year. Let's be honest, for the past 10 years or so, dividend-paying stocks may not have been the most exciting place to invest, but they certainly have performed well. And I would say that uh, sometimes boring can be quite good. Uh, last year, you could invest in companies that increased sales, top line revenues. It was fun, exciting. Think meme stocks. Companies didn't even actually have to make money, yet their prices would go up even as their debt piled up as well. So I think this year, you know, back to business means back to earnings and um, earnings are going to matter. We're going to talk about what you think is the most boring. And by boring, we mean good in just a moment. But Andrew, let's just get your overall thoughts. We did see prices come down pretty significantly in the market if you're just looking from January at this point. Was that enough, that de-risking enough? And where do you think we're headed once people get really back to business? Yeah, I'm not sure we can say for sure. I think the, the back to business is more like back to healthy volumes, too, for the market. And this is always a really challenging period. This last two weeks of, of August, you've got a lot of high single stock volatility. You saw it in a couple of names recently, MongoDB and whatever, another earnings announcement here and there. But you got to collect all that information. And I think when we get back next week or actually the following, you're going to have the advantage of a lot of sell side uh, analyst conference uh, companies being able to talk and give a little bit more color on the on the picture going forward. That's going to help bring some more clarity. But generally speaking, yeah, markets down a lot. I treat this more like when are we going to get to the clearing event or the de-risking event? And I think a lot of the earnings revisions that have been going on here really since uh, May and especially after Q2 earnings seasons, which is kind of still just trickling through. Once that's done, you kind of have this de-risking of markets because that'll be for the 2023 um, calendar estimates. And so I look for that to be um, 
an opportunity, I suppose, mm -hmm. to see if the market can put in a floor. And I suspect that it will, but very, we want to see more evidence. Very quickly, you don't think June 16th was the bottom then? No, I like that number, that 3660 number yeah. for the S&P. That's fine. I actually think it's going to hold 3900 or 3898 or whatever it is, which is, you know, there's some witchcraft or voodoo in there. Um, but yeah, I'm generally, I just, you know, you need to see more. We've been playing defense since really about mid-January um, with client portfolios and having lots of cash and all the rest of it. And I'm, you know, ready to get back to work. And what we're trying to do is use this period to collect the the, stock, the strong stocks, the ones that act the best in this horrible tape mm -hmm. and the ones that are putting up big quarters. And so we've got all that information. We're, we're anxious to see what they look like once the market does actually make a bottom. Let's run through some of those names very quickly from each of you. Kevin, first up, the, you like boring. You like Chevron. Is, that, uh, is Chevron the boringest of the boring for you? Well, I also like a little voodoo and witchcraft, you know, who doesn't, Becky? But I like to keep it simple, you know, companies that make money, companies that increase earnings, and most importantly for us, companies that increase dividends. So we're looking at a stock that's paying about a 3.5% yield right now. But more importantly, for the past five years, it's given us a raise of about 4%. And I don't know exactly where inflation is going to end up, but at least if we've got a company increasing that cash flow by 4% a year, that's a true hedge against inflation. And it makes me feel very comfortable. Andrew, your favorite name? I think right here, probably AbbVie, um, talking about dividends. Kevin, we're, you know, there's a 4% dividend yield on AbbVie. It's a pharmaceutical company, of course. There's sort of a little controversy around the stock, and that's got, you know, it's trading down at 12 times trough earnings, which is the lowest we've seen in more than two decades. It's lower than where Pfizer was two decades ago when it had nothing in the pipeline. AbbVie's got a lot in the pipeline, including two replacements for Humira, which is the reason for the controversy. The company's going to announce earnings at the end of October. I expect them to give us an update on what the, the glide path is going to be to post-Humira earnings. Once that happens, that's the de-risking event. You want to be invested before that happens. And we just think it's an easy stock to own here with Renvoke and SkyRizzy coming in. Mm -hmm. And those launches are much better than expected. Andrew, Kevin, thank you both. Have a great weekend, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Becky. Thanks, Becky. All right. We are just past the bottom of the hour. We want to get you up to speed on where we ended the week on Wall Street. If you haven't seen this yet, you might want to turn away. This is not for the weak of heart. It was a rough week for the major averages. The Dow was the best performer. It was down 3 percent. The Nasdaq was lower every day this week, and it extended its losing streak to six. To six. Also, that's the first time that's happened since 2019. Then you've got the Russell 2000 small cap index. That was down by nearly 5 percent, and it was a messy afternoon. So, uh, didn't look much better the later we got. The CNBC special Back to Business continues right after this break. Consumer confidence has certainly taken a hit this year thanks to inflation and rising gas prices. But according to some new data, Americans just got more optimistic about the economy for the first time in about four months. Steve Odland is the CEO of the conference board. He joins us right now to break down that data. And Steve, give us the good news. How are Americans feeling these days? Yeah, Becky, the Conference Board's Consumer Confidence Index bounced back here in August after several months of decline. So we're back to where we were in the spring. You know, the Consumer Confidence Index is based on how consumers are feeling about their own jobs and their own financial situation right now and what they think is going to happen in the next six months. And what's been really worrying consumers has been inflation because the jobs market has been very solid, as we know, with over 11 million openings and you've got wages going up over 5%. So that part of it's very, very solid. 
it's been inflation. Now, gas prices have actually come down a little bit in the last couple of months, even though food continues to rise. Uh, that has been rattling consumers. And now that you're, you're seeing some stabilization in inflation, the consumer confidence has come back up. Now, juxtapose that against the CEO confidence levels, which is at which are at very low levels, uh, pretty much recording where they were during the pandemic and the lows of the Great Recession. So CEOs are seeing a recession coming driven by the Fed and uh, you know, the prediction that they're not going to be able to engineer a soft landing. So those two measures are, in, in juxtaposing the two together, are at odds right now. Hey, Steve, I, I just wonder how fragile this better consumer confidence is. If it was largely because of higher gas prices that people were feeling bad, higher inflation, what happens if gas prices pick back up? And I'm saying that specifically because of the concerning news we're, we're hearing out of Russia and watching gas prices in WTI, crude oil prices rise again. That could lead to higher prices at the pump for Americans pretty quickly. Yeah, it's food and gas, uh, no question about it. And it particularly hits the low end. So you see the high end consumer just fine because it's a lower percentage of their total spending. So luxury goods, autos, all of that are are doing very well. It's the low end. And so you see people shifting down in their spending, trading into lower priced goods and so forth. Now back to school is underway. We're about a month into it, as you know, you've been reporting. And they that seems to be pretty solid here. You know, we bounced back last year following the pandemic. There still seems to be some pent up demand, especially with clothing and, and things like that, to equip people to go back to school. That looks pretty good. The question is whether inflation will pop back uh, driven by gas prices and how will that impact the holiday season? And that's what we're watching. Steve, we'll take whatever good news we can get. Thank you. Thanks, Becky. Still to come on this CNBC special, Back to Business, Jim Cramer offering up his autumn assessment. And as we go to a break right now, let's check out the NASDAQ 100's biggest gainers so far this year. We'll be right back. Jim Cramer might not be here tonight, but as you know, he never takes a day off from the markets. Here are some of Jim's thoughts on how investors should position their portfolios as we head into the fall. One thing I want people to do is to recognize that September can be a brutal month. Why? Because people want to sell out of October, which they think is the brutal month. So I've got a solution. I think that you don't do anything in September of any significance unless the stock market drops another 10 percent or we get so oversold that the market has to bounce. In other words, forget about the calendar. September's a tricky month because it's been great and bad. October, not so tricky. It's been really good for most years, except for a couple of big crashes. We want to be sure we avoid those, of course. So what I always say is forget about the calendar. Look at the individual companies. Stop thinking about what days or weeks are going to be so bad and start going after the companies that come down with stocks that are now cheaper, that are doing well, whether it be September, October, November, December, January, or all those other months. There's 12 of them. (laughs) That, of course, was our very own Jim Cramer with some pretty sage advice. And there are plenty of questions when it comes to what's next for this market. Joining us tonight to answer a few of yours is Delano Sapporo. He is New Street Advisor CEO, also a CNBC contributor. And Delano, thanks for being here with us. We want to kick things off with our first question. Listen in. 
Hello CNBC, my name is Mark Snorio calling from beautiful Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, my question is about Nike. Uh, they seem like they're constantly innovating, they're constantly on top of their game. Uh, people will only continue to love their brand. As you can see, I got the Nike shirt, I got the, the Nikes on the feet. Um, my question to you is, will Nike always be tied to the ebbs and flows of China? Hmm. Good question. Delano, what do you think? Good question and good gear, Becky. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, when it comes to Nike, you know, they are going to have some near-term headwinds. Obviously, we know that 17, roughly 17% of their revenue is overseas and obviously in China. So we're looking at $8 billion in quarter in revenue in the last year's quarter revenue. That's a lot of, uh, of revenue. So what I want to focus on for investors, what they should focus on is the short-term headwinds that could be quelled in the long term. And if you look at the supply chain issues and you look at you know issues with the zero COVID policy, um, those are things that are near-term headwinds. But long-term, the trend is going to improve, right? And this is still, as management's pointed out, a growth region for Nike. And if you look at the direct-to-consumer, which is obviously doing well overseas as well, um, that's a strong one. That's a strong point as well. I hold Nike, and I think it's a long-term hold for investors. What about Lululemon? People always compare the two, even though Lululemon has a much smaller market cap. Yeah, that's another retailer that I actually hold a smaller position in. Uh, we're going to talk about another retailer name as well. But I, I like Lululemon. And, you know, the, one of the reasons why I like Lululemon is because they've done a good job managing their big box same-store sales. Um, and that's something that's been very rough for a lot of retailers over the past couple of years. So still holding them. And I think their online strategy is also strong. So I'm looking for the retailers that have a strong online strategy and management that's really focused on, you know, direct to consumers and doing well in that area. Next up, we've got a question. This one comes from Omar in New York. Let's listen in. Hey, everyone. This is Omar in New York. I was interested in NVIDIA with the Biden administration taking active measures to restrict China and Russia's ability to acquire sophisticated computer chips. NVIDIA has found itself in the crossfire. But my question is, what happens when that part of the region is forced to become more self-reliant and put maximum effort towards their own R&D? Thank you. Delano, what do you think? This has been the question for the markets this week. Yes, and I'll focus on NVIDIA and what's going to happen for them. They're going to have to obviously find, you know, another more regions where they can grow and obviously more regions where they can sell their their, their chips and obviously in, in some areas, their software. So if you look at their businesses, obviously have the data center chips and they have the gaming chips. And I think one area they're doing really strong at is the data center chips, which is essentially almost software. So the margins there are a lot stronger. And if you look at it almost a decade back, how they've grown their margins from around 51% to around 65%. It's really focused on those data centers. The gaming's going to struggle in the near term. And investors that are holding or are looking for areas for, like as Jim mentioned, mm -hmm. a correction in NVIDIA, you would want to buy if you believe in the long-term margin story and profitability. So mm -hmm. that's, that's one area where NVIDIA could, could come out strong. Delano, thank you for being here and stepping in, offering advice to our, our viewers tonight. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Becky. Mm -hmm. The CNBC special Back to Business continues right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Ahead of a busy conference season, Silicon Valley officials want you to believe that the city is back and better than ever, but that may not be quite as simple, at least when it comes to the office. Yasmin Coram has that story for us. Yasmin? 
Becky, that's right. A strong labor market and robust conference season. Not the full story out here when it comes to the cliche return to normal. Yes, the U.S. jobs added uh, over 300,000 jobs in August and Salesforce is expected to host 150,000 attendees at its annual Dreamforce event later this month. But the surge in jobs and conferences comes against the backdrop of pretty serious challenges in getting people back into the office. San Francisco, once a bustling hub for workers, now, as you can see, has one of the highest office vacancy rates in the country. Nearly a quarter of its downtown office space remains completely empty. It's a market that's seen the vacancy rate increase the most compared to where it was pre-pandemic. This could be because of the city's unique relationship with tech. The industry has created more than 4 million jobs since 2020. The problem is tech companies headquartered out here have been flexible with allowing their employees to work remotely. Many have scaled back growth expectations, Salesforce, Lyft, closing down their offices, realizing they don't need much office space as they adopt what's called a remote first policy. Now, now, however, city officials I spoke with pushed back on the idea that San Francisco is a troubled office market, saying, Becky, that really there's no difference here than any other major city that's recovering. Thank you very much. Despite signs of slowing in San Francisco, our next guest says that he sees just the opposite on the East Coast. He says that New York City leasing is up 72 percent from last year's levels. Bill Rudin is the CEO of Rudin Management, and he joins us to talk about Manhattan's real estate and the return to office. Bill, we've, we've heard a lot about the return to office, especially from, from some, some of the Wall Street companies, including Goldman Sachs, that say, hey, come uh, post-Labor Day, we expect to have people back in offices. What, what are you seeing so far? Well, we're, we're going, New York is going back to business, and we're seeing that uh, every day occupancy levels are going up. And here's a little fun fact. August, which is typically a very slow month for commercial leasing, over 3 million square feet of leases were signed uh, and 17 million year to date. That's a pretty staggering number. It, it, the last time we hit that number was in January of 2020. So we're seeing people making commitments, looking forward. And what the difference is now is the workspace is being adapted to attract the talent back into the space. We're over uh, 60% occupied uh, average our buildings. Some of our buildings where we're offices is, uh, where Blackstone is and the NFL is at 70%. Blackstone's been back in the office over two years. So you're seeing that now. Goldman, Google is also, uh, they have three day a week uh, and they're going to flex to more. Uh, there's a commitment by Google to expand in New York City. And we're seeing tremendous amount of leasing activity. Uh, but where it is, is a newer product, renovated product. People want amenities. They want lifestyle amenities so that they feel comfortable going back into the work environment with a uh, uh, type of uh, amenities I'm talking about are uh, health and wellness, food, uh, outdoor space. We just signed a lease with a company called Huge in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Uh, and they're calling it their global experience center. So they want to bring their people back. They want to have their cl uh, customers come into the space. 
And it's it that that's where the future of office space is. Yeah, global experience office sounds a little better than the office. I will give you that for sure. But Bill, when you say I don't mean to play pessimist here, when you say things are sixty percent occupied or more than sixty percent occupied, I kind of hear well, that's almost forty percent unoccupied. What what's the profitability on that? What's the math on that? And how does that compare to what we saw in two thousand and nineteen pre pandemic? Well. You know, the, the whole world is, is, is shifted uh, and there are always there now is going to be definitely some level of hybrid. But I think every month going forward, uh, you're going to see more and more people come back into the office. That's going to help the retailers. That's going to help the restaurants. Rest, you can't get a reservation in New York City in a restaurant. So you can't find a worker are, to serve you. Well, that that's well that you may have to wait a little longer. But right. our our residential were in the over ninety six percent occupied. Mm-hmm. People are in the city, as you well know. Uh, the building behind you in Times Square, where you guys broadcast, uh, we're renovating. We've signed a uh, a three hundred thousand foot lease with an educational institution. The mm-hmm. market is diversifying. Tenants who have signed leases are data dog. Uh, uh, there's uh, Alexander Wang, Tory Birch, uh, there's life science, there's healthcare. The whole market is 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 changing, but everybody wants space that has uh, those type of amenities. The old adage, location, 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 has changed to location, uh, amenities, environmental sustainability, <laughs> fresh air, more light and air, open, uh, more more uh, more open space. These are the things that companies are uh, asking us to do. We're helping them do it. They're doing it in their own space. And we have a responsibility to make sure our product is at the cutting edge of what tenants want and what their employees. It's all about the talent. It's about attracting and retaining talent. And that's where we're partners with our our customers to help achieve that. I only have 10 seconds, but what does that mean for the buildings that aren't renovating, that aren't doing new things? Is that just- Well, we're gonna have to work with the city and the state. I know the mayor and the governor are interested in these ideas of converting older buildings to residential. We did it downtown in the mid nineties, very successful. Went from 10,000 people living in Lower Manhattan to over 70,000 people. So that's the type of of adaption and change that we need to do to make our city keep growing. Thank you, sir. Great to see you. That does it for us today. The news with Shepard Smith starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.